Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zoe Griffith. Today we're very, very fortunate to welcome Professor Armin Marsubian to talk about his recent work, uh, which involves a series of publications and international exhibitions featuring the photography, and through that photography, the lives of the Dildilian family of Armenian photographers who were active in provincial Anatolia around the turn of the 20th century. Armin is professor and chair of philosophy at Southern Connecticut State University, as well as a descendant of the Dildilian family, and his recent book, Fragments of a Lost Homeland, Remembering Armenia, combines the family's extensive and unique archives of photos, memoirs, and oral histories in an absolutely beautiful and tragic view of the incredible journey of his ancestors, as well as the greater Armenian community in Ottoman Anatolia. Um, Many of our listeners will be familiar with the historical contours and probably with the horrific scale of the Armenian genocide, but I would guess that not so many have had the opportunity to read the words of some of its closest observers or to see through their eyes the world that they were living before, after, and even during some of the most devastating years of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So, Armin, this is a really remarkable project. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to talking. Thank you. Uh, the photographic output of the Dildilian family, these Armenian photographers in Anatolia, uh, the photographs tell an incredible story, and we'll, we'll get to talking about uh, the photography itself. But this project is really an important family history of a period that we have... Um, it, it remains sort of faceless, I think, in many recountings. So why don't we start by talking a bit about the Dildilian family in Anatolia and um, the lead-up to their um, entry into photography. Yes, I'm uh, fortunate to have not just the photography collection and, and the memoirs that uh, capture their their lives in Anatolia, but the family had a tradition, an oral tradition, of telling stories about their uh, their ancestors, and we we trace the family to the mid 18th century mm-hmm. with the first. Uh, member of the family who took the Dildilian name uh, because of his blacksmithing skills. Uh, and these stories, by the mid-19th century, started to get uh, written down and passed on to the family uh, well before the family became involved for two generations in photography. Uh, members of the family, besides blacksmiths, they were grocers, and ultimately they had one of the largest shoe businesses in, in Sivas, mm-hmm. in central Anatolia. And it was my grandfather who decided to take a different path in the 1880s. He had been exposed through uh, books and, and, and uh, magazines to photography and images, and he was very artistically inclined. Uh, photography and art are very closely connected in this in this period. Uh, in many ways, you had to be a good drawer and a, a, a painter because you use those skills. And he convinced his father, my great grandfather Krikor, uh, to support his desire to become a photographer. And in 1888, he took his first photograph. The photograph was of his younger brother. In in certain ways. Uh, a, 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 an adorable image uh, of uh, looks like a little overfed boy uh, standing next to uh, a chair and holding a big umbrella. 
and uh, these be these are props in the photograph. And as you know, in this period, it was it was quite common to have various props in in photographs, and that that began the uh, the family business. Within a couple of years, he had a a, a partner, and uh, he began working for the government, mm. taking photographs in various cities and sites around around Anatolia, around the empire. I, I find it incredible how over the years I find photographs taken in places I had no idea that they had traveled that, that far or worked in those, those communities. Because uh, photography wasn't just the stationary studio activity uh, in this period. Armenian photographers, which were the dominant photographers in Anatolia, uh, would travel great distances mm. taking photographs. And it was true true of the dildillions and this 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 business grew it grew both because of of the talents of the family in photography but also working with a lot of uh, western uh, influences brought to that region by the missionaries uh, and the rise of anatolia college uh, which was a protestant missionary college founded by the american board for foreign uh, missions um, he became the photographer for them. He branched out into the postcard business, which was very uh, lucrative right at the turn of the century, working with European publishers. But all during this time, as the family was prospering, and, and in, the, in the memoirs it talks about the, the li- their lives and the communities that they, they, they uh, lived in, uh, there were also many setbacks. Yes, um, it was it was a period uh, in the late nineteenth century where, uh, under Abdul Hamid, there were fears of growing demands for Armenians and other minorities for rights. So there were moments of suppression, including the massacres in eighteen ninety five and six. And uh, in in a way, telling the family story is also telling the story of the Armenians, uh, Armenian minority in this this area. Because uh, when I started to write the books, which were based on the memoirs, I needed to fill in the context of all of the events that are being described. Yeah, and I'd like to talk maybe in a little bit about how unique this archive is. But I want to spend a little time for our listeners going back to the beginning of your story and uh, talking about something that, um, I mean, photography in the Ottoman Empire has become a big topic of interest how does provincial armenian or provincial photography differ from what was going on in istanbul i think we know more about what was going on in the center as usual yes we we know a lot more for a long time uh about istanbul photographers or constantinople at the time uh, and 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 these and we know this because of the fact that uh people collected these very well-known Armenian and Greek photographers mm. in Constantinople. Uh, and we also know that Abdul Hamid II was an avid collector mm. and had great interest in photography, and he amassed a huge collection. Um, but because of the fact that these were things that were collected and saved, they became then, understandably, the focus of writing about Ottoman photography, and not necessarily 
what else was going on right. in in the empire. So we come we come away with this image of of what Ottoman photography was, and that's what the major books and publications initially appeared as, um, without really knowing much about what was going on in the interior, or whether there was anything going on in the interior. Uh, And because, one, the photographers were primarily Armenian in the Anatolian interior, on the Black Sea coast and the Mediterranean coast, there were both a mix of Armenian and and Greek. Mm. Both those minorities then were in in many ways erased from that landscape. So the work they did on that landscape also disappeared with them. And, and thankfully they were able to save some of it, but presumably a, yeah, most it's, was it's lost. Just to think of, uh, there were something like 140 photographers listed in the sort of commerce almanac in 1914 in provincial photographers, Uh, most of them Armenian, and uh, then, as I said, some Greeks. Almost all of them stopped work during the First World War, either because of the deportations and the massacres or or escaping. And that output also disappeared in terms of what the studios had, because it was typical of a studio to to have keep the negative. Right. And when, you know, you could always come back for more prints, but those studios were erased. The Dildillion studio was one of the, one of the exceptions, one of the actually two exceptions that I've, I've found. Uh, there could be more. Mm. The other one was the Enkababian uh, studio in, in uh, Sivas, which is where the family first started photography, but then, moved to headquarters in Merzivan, Marzivan, and uh, had branches in some other cities, Samsun and Amasya. Uh, but those two photographers, or families of photographers, survived 1915 in the aftermath because they were allowed by the government to stay because they were recruited into the, the military uh, and, and, and had to take Turkish identities and, and uh, convert to Islam. So that in, in the case, of course, I know more about the Dillillians, their studio remained and, and the photographs remained and survived the war. Uh, and then, fortunately, after the war, when the armistice came, the family tried to revive the business and it was slowly reviving. But then the, the, the War of Independence and the fighting with the Greeks and the rise of nationalism uh, forced them to leave in 1922, and they made the, I think, uh, you know, uh, decision uh, about what to take. And what they took were mostly the photographs and the negatives. Uh, obviously, they left a huge amount behind, um, but they didn't, you know, they didn't. They take they took a few books and a few rugs and a few other things, but uh, it was this this archive that uh, they took to Greece uh, on a boat uh, with hundreds of orphans that they were also tending. And it's even more staggering when you think about, I mean, these were not sort of negatives as we know them today either. Yes, it it is. um, I mean, when I, when my uncle back in the 1980s gave me the collection, because he was the last professional photographer in the family and he was working in Hartford, 
you know, he, I was familiar with the photo albums. Uh, I didn't realize there were boxes of really old Ottoman era photographs, you know, from that first photograph in 1888. But then, he, you know, there were these boxes I could hardly lift, and it turned out to be the glass, the glass negatives. Um, and when I started looking through them, maybe two or three were cracked, some were chipped, but for the most part, they had to survive. Mm-hmm. And then when I started to really become familiar with the story and, and just thinking how, these, how these, these glass negatives, some of them went from um, Merzafon, some maybe from Sivas to Merzafon to Samsun uh, by boat uh, to uh, Piraeus and then stayed in the studio in Athens survived the Second World War and the bombings in Piraeus, and then eventually, uh, in, in the ni- late 1940s, went on another ship to the United States and to, to Hartford. You know, uh, it, it's, 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 uh, I'm so dumbfounded by, by its, its survival. I, I can't say in whole, because I'm sure there were many, many more photographs, and they were making decisions about what they weren't going to pack all the commercial negative glass negatives, uh, you know, but we have, you know, we have some prints of, we have this print of the governor of Sivas. We don't have his, his negative. I guess they thought he wasn't going to come back for additional prints, (laughs) but uh, so it, it's, it's a, it's a unique uh, collection and it's, it's a unique story. It is. And the, weaving together of these different sources it's kind of it's a historian's dream but it must have been extremely difficult as a personal endeavor in some ways yes it was um i mean it was i was learning things many things about the family i didn't know about including the conversion to islam and the Mm. taking of turkish identities Mm. because uh the story i grew up with was my grandfather was an important photographer he he was in the Ottoman army, my mother would say that she recalled as she was a young child at the time, but she recalled recalled him coming home in uniform, uh, but being away a lot during during the war, uh, and that he he was able to save the family because of the photography. But it wasn't it wasn't explained that they had to take further steps uh, because they couldn't remain in the city and uh, as, as, as uh, Armenians and as Christians. So they all took, were given Turkish names. And that I only, you know, discovered um, probably about uh, five years ago uh, when these notebooks were discovered in a closet in Paris by my French cousin. And he began the process of, of, translating them from Armenian into French and then mm-hmm. sent me the, the, uh, the work and mm-hmm. um, started to read it and realized, you know, that uh, this is a description, almost a day, day-to-day description of those, those, uh, those weeks in, in the summer of 1915 and, and the decision of my grandfather uh, to, to convert and the arguments within the family about conversion because my grandmother and his sister didn't want to convert. Um, and how uh, do we have any ex- uh, any knowledge of how extensive the conversions were? How many op- families were even given the option? Yeah, I've I've actually written a, a paper 
about this uh, for for Marzifon, Marzifon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, in this locality, they were one of the highest numbers of conversions. Okay. And it was all a matter of local individuals. The, the idea under Talapasha was a, a, a sort of a demographic engineering project where no more than 5% of the community could uh, avoid deportation. And uh, in, in, it, it turned out in, in Marzavan, they were the, the number of Armenians roughly were around 13 to 15,000 of, out of about 25 to 28,000. And in, in the, not in that particular, not in the family memoirs, but in another memoir that I've, uh, I was given of uh, the wealthy, nor- notable Armenian in, uh, in the town of Keramijan, who's mentioned in the, in, in the book that mm-hmm. I wrote. He, he says there were 3,000 converts in Marzavan. In Marzavan. And, of course, this was all through bribes, because you had to pay for the conversion. And then, ultimately, pressure from Constantinople forced the locals to actually deport more than half of them. After they converted. After they converted, after they paid their bribes. Right. Uh, and uh, they were eventually forced to leave uh, in the last groups in, in September 1915. So, of the remaining number, it's 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 somewhat unclear. The uh, my guess is about nine hundred to a thousand, maybe a little more. Um, and then I've come across a, a Ottoman document that was translated into modern Turkish, and it lists the names of the mm-hmm. families that converted and the members of the family, mm-hmm. and that's where my grandfather's name is listed with all his children and my grandmother and his brother. Um, but it doesn't list his sister, who also remained, and her five children. So the documents are not necessarily, I think, reflective of the actual number. And that document listed, I think, about 400 at the most. I can't remember okay. the number. but uh, So there was, there was a- actually probably a double set of books being kept mm. by by the locals and uh, people profiting by by this. So it's an in- it's an interesting story in itself that isn't directly related to the photography. But I I've I've written a piece that hopefully will get published sometime in next year that that deals with these these conversions in in Mars when I presented a paper here in Istanbul mm. based on on that information because you have these sort of these unique memoirs about describing you know what what it took to get the conversion and and uh, and the names of many of the families that did convert uh, and so in the meantime the family converts you say in the book and it's one of the most kind of powerful points that only the family that remained in Marsifan survives 1915. Um, and they're able to, I mean, their lives are extremely constricted, but they are able to do as much as they can during this period, including sheltering young people running away and yes. things like this. How were they able to remain there? How were they able to to hide these people for as long as they did? 
It was a lot of ingenuity. Um, they, um, in both my grandfather and his sister's houses, which were relatively close by, they managed to find build in hiding places in their houses uh, and did an extensive tunneling underneath certainly my great aunt's house. And these were young men initially and then some young women who were associated with Anatolia College mm-hmm. who, were, who were being uh, deported. They were involved with the college, this American college, and they were one of the last groups to be deported because of the American right. presence. And they always thought that the, because the, America was not at, the United States was not at war with the Ottomans until 1917. So the, those first two years of the, the genocide, uh, the U.S. was a neutral power. And there was a, a certain kind of deference, at least initially, to um, those who were closely associated with the with the uh, United States, but ultimately that didn't didn't work, and and these were individuals deported, and plans were made to uh, run away from the deportation car- caravans, and uh, the family first tried to supply these young men with right. with food and and uh, let them hide in the mountains, but it became too too difficult, so they eventually brought them in into the homes and, 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 and dug uh, chambers underneath the house and used some of the abandoned homes to tunnel to. So you could, uh, the engineering is just a little mind boggling uh, that this could be done. They built periscope so they could look around the neighborhood to make sure they, they uh, <laughs> uh, could have a 360 degree mm-hmm. view of who might be uh, uh, approaching at night, they would raise the level of the walls around the houses because all these houses in, typically in that period had, had walls, mm-hmm. so it was higher each night. Uh, and, you know, it was a lot of s- a subterfuge that they, you know, in their, in their daily comings and goings, the, the, um, only the, generally only the male f- members of the family interacted with, people in the, the 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 people in the community so to keep minimal about you know what was going on but then my mother had memories as a young child of she thought there were ghosts in the house because suddenly a, a new person would appear from nowhere and it was you know it wasn't as if the individuals were in bunkers for two years but you know every so often they had to go and hide and they would come up and 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 during during times of less pressure um but it's a fascinating story and it's very detailed the names of the people that they were saving uh i have many of them um i traced some of them what happened to them afterwards uh um it's a it's a, a remarkable story and there is one photograph getting to the photographs there isn't much that was created during that period right that was kept aside from, and it wasn't kept, there were photographs being taken for the government and they didn't keep any of those. Uh, but there's this uh, two photographs taken of these young men and members of the family uh, celebrating uh, Christmas in January 1916, uh, in, in which uh, obviously there's no priest and they're not really having a religious ceremony, but they're dressed to look like a priest and, and, and have the, 
you know, the crucifix and other items related to a mass. And uh, also they have a banner saying Christ was born 1916 to, to, to identify what is going on in the image. Right. It's, a, it's an informal image. It's a very sort of a staged image, uh, but it also is a, a very powerful image they're knowing that uh, that they're 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 documenting their holding on to their faith and also their Armenian identity because they they have a little uh, flag on this on the table which is a proto Armenian flag. It has the six stars for the six provinces, the vilayets that were that had significant Armenian populations, and it, it uh, and and they're you know they're saying that they're they're maintaining their identities even though they're forced to to uh give them up uh, right. so it's i mean there's the layer of of secrecy of this being while they've adopted these turkish muslim identities outwardly there's also several members of the photo who are literally sort of hidden in yes. this house for years yeah yeah they wouldn't and even you know even having because because males be between um, eighteen or seventeen, actually at some point I think, um, and forty five were drafted in the Ottoman army. Um, you know, com- conversion uh, even early on didn't prevent you from being uh, recruited into army, and then you know there the armenian uh, members of the ottoman army for the most part were were disarmed and 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 massacred so um you know the, these these individuals uh seeing them in the photograph is already signaling that they shouldn't be the young men at this point in in a photograph taken in january right. 1916 cuz most as we know most most of the survivors of the of the genocide were were women and and children. Some say three hundred thousand or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, scattered survivors, uh, either who fled or who survived the Syrian deserts. Right. And so, as we were saying a little while ago, I mean, one of the really unique. I mean, there's lots of unique things about this about this project, but one of them is that we have these. Um, photos and memoirs and the experiences of Armenians who remained in Anatolia and lived through the second sort of wave of expulsions and and violence in um, the early 20s. And so it's interesting to to look at the way that photography played into that last period because the photos themselves often are kind of uh, driving forces for what's happening to this family. I mean, they're not it's not just that they have the ability to take photos. I mean, they're taking photos both to kind of um, impel action on the parts of the Americans and on the British in terms of photographing orphans. And also there are a couple of instances where the photos begin to cause real problems for the family. So how did they take their skills in this, in this period and, and push them towards something greater? Yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating because, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they continued as typical professional studio photographers, but of course, much of their clientele was was gone. It's gone yeah. um, so they they needed to take on. Uh, well, I wouldn't say needed to take on, but they were 
they were motivated just as they were to a certain extent before the war of of a certain kind of documentary photography yeah. even though i don't think they would have called it and you know it's only in retrospect that we see that they're 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 documenting what's going on around them and one of the major preoccupations of this period was dealing with the aftermath of the war and the genocide so these are the orphan pictures that come to dominate uh, the collection and uh, both in 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 Marzvan and in Samson, major orphanages were established in Marzvan by the Near East Relief. There was a big humanitarian effort around the world, but especially in the United States, by Near East Relief to raise funds to deal with the orphans and and uh, the photography played an important role in that because they. These photographs then became part of the the campaign to raise raise money, um, and uh, in Samson, where one of the two Dildilian brothers, Aram, the younger brother, he realized that there were a huge need uh, to deal with the orphans on the street. He organizes an orphanage there not necessarily directly initially run by the Near East Relief, but organized by the the surviving Armenians themselves. And he runs this orphanage, and he in the memoirs it talks in quite detail about uh, what he did to, to get it uh, up and running, and phot- photography was used at that purpose. Mm-hmm. He took photographs to uh, convince the notables in the town to, to give money and organize. He used photographs to give to the Americans who were, were coming there. Um, and, uh, all at all still doing what professional photographers still do is take, taking other kinds of portraits. And then, you know, the funny thing is he's also taking photographs in the initial stages of this uh, war that's starting to take place between uh, the Greeks and, and, and the, the nationalist forces. And he, he talks about the fact that he, that he, he went and, and photographed groups of Greek uh, guerrillas fighting uh, the Turks, and he goes and he takes photographs of the the Turkish paramilitary uh, forces, and it, in a way, he's sort of uh, doing what a photographer, you know, mm. does. You know, the the serving the clients, even though it's obvious he has a preference for one client <laughs> over the other. Uh, he claims that he gets he he gets paid by the Greeks, and the and the uh, the the Turkish paramilitary don't always pay him, but. You know, you don't. I I don't know if that. You know, in 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 retrospect, when he's writing this memoir years later, he's he's doing it through uh, certain tinted uh, sure. uh, glasses. But uh, um, so all 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 this is going on, and and my grandfather is photographing the nationalists arriving in in Samson, uh, and there's a few photographs of of these individuals. One of them is the first foreign minister under uh, Ataturk. And, uh, um, you know, there, there are other incidents that seem to... <laughs> it's almost as if when reading the memoirs, they seem to be in places that that coincide with the Turkish national narrative. They're, you know, 
they're on the way to Samson and they, they run into uh, Ataturk, who is on the way to Amasya, for, and that's where the first uh, the Amasya declaration is made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these things, I, when I first read the memoirs, I didn't know the, the, the nationalist context of it. And then I was saying, oh, well, boy, he's, he's, he came that close to, you know, taking Ataturk's photograph. My grandmother wouldn't have him stay in the same house with <laughs> Hi, this is Ottoman History Podcast producer Chris Grayton. You're listening to Zoe Griffith's interview with Armin Marsubian about the life and works of the Dildilian brothers and Armenian photography in Ottoman Anatolia. I want to invite you to check out some of the episodes related to the history of Ottoman Armenians on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, and in a special playlist on our SoundCloud page. These include a prior interview with Vahe Tashchian, director of the Hushamadian Project, a great website dedicated to reconstructing Ottoman Armenian life, and an interview with Adhem Eldem, conducted by Emily Neumeyer and Nir Shafir, about the history of Ottoman photography and how it can be studied. Thanks for listening, and now more from Zoe Griffith and Armin Marsubian on the subject of Armenian photography in Ottoman Anatolia. You say there's 140 or so uh, photography studios in the provinces. What were they doing mostly during this sort of pre pre war period? Yeah, well, the the the, the f- studios. Um, this was that number one hundred forty is right uh, in in the in the annual commercial sort of catalog of mm-hmm. nineteen fourteen, and the numbers kept in- increasing because I've mm-hmm. seen other figures early er- earlier on, but um, you know, photography began in the Anatolian interior uh, roughly in the early part of the eighteen seventies. I think the first studio um of any significance was in Korpert in 1876 and this was a period an interesting period in ottoman history because the the 18 1870s there were the first in it, it was it was a, a difficult period in particular this was a period in the eastern provinces where uh economic conditions uh, were were worsening mm. and that many of these uh, these families uh, they, they were also in this period a number of significant famines but there were many families who were not finding it economically viable to continue in the kind of either rural or um, more city lives that they had uh, and members of the family began internal migrations mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. to some of the more uh, prosperous parts of the empire, including uh, Constantinople, mm-hmm. Izmir, uh, and, and Jerusalem. Some, mm-hmm. some went even to the Arab provinces. Uh, but others managed to leave the country, and the first large-scale uh, emigration to the United States began in this period of the late 1870s, 1880s. And it was at the same time that photography was being incorporated. So uh, photography be- 
became a way of keeping the the family unit together through the image. Uh, many of these families had been in these locations for for generations, um, hadn't been dispersed in in, in mm. to any great extent across different parts of the empire, and it was the economic uh, possibilities that were raised by important cities in the, in the empire and in the United States and in, in Europe where this economic migration began. Uh, there's a term that's referred to as bogtuch. It's the economic migrant. Mm -hmm. And in, usually it was young men, sometimes occasionally the head of the household. Um, that was the case on my father's side of the family, which is unrelated to the photography. Mm -hmm. My, my grandfather left, uh, a village uh, near Palu in near Bitlis in 1912 to come to the United States and wow. start uh, working to raise money, ultimately to go back. The idea was for many of these families that the, the young men or the head of the household would leave, make his fortune and return. But of course, that wasn't always the case because opportunities arose in these new lands and the experience of uh, less oppression, more freedom made these, uh, these individuals, these ep economic migrants, uh, more interested in trying to bring the members of the family over. Right. Um, and and, the, and the, then the photograph was a way of, of, of keeping the, the, the social bonds within the family connected even though there were vast distances in time. So there are many, many of these group photographs that were taken 1880s, 1890s, even even after the turn of the century, where uh, this was like a, a, a the last group family picture before mm. the individual leaves. And the, these these images then are given to the migrant takes them to the United States. And that's why many of these photographs survive in the diaspora, mm -hmm. not in Anatolia. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a nice large Armenian archive in, in Watertown, uh, Project Save in particular, started by Ruth Tomasian, where there's you know image after image of these families. And, and, and putting some of the, the stories together, it's clear that many of these were taken at moments of great change and, and uh, departure. Same thing in my family photographs. There are, there's this beautiful image of my, my great aunt who leaves in 1912 to marry an Armenian in California who mm -hmm. had, his family had migrated decade before, who, you know, she, she had met the brother of the man that she would marry, but she hadn't met her husband yet. Uh, except in a photograph, right. uh, and she's there with all all her nephews and nieces, uh, and this is you know the last photograph that's being being taken with you know with these members of the family, um, and there are other images like that at moments where members of the family have left. So it the these are ways of reminding the migrant about the family that's left behind uh and the and in some cases photographs are taken there's one photograph of a group of family members 
in which they're holding the photograph of, uh, in this case, the young man of the family who had left. So letting, and this, this photograph then winds up in the United States. So it's, it's, it's reminding him, you're still part of this family uh, and uh, attempting to, you know, keep the family unit together in a symbolic way through, through the image. And, Unfortunately, what many of these photographs then become are, are memorials mm-hmm. because the, the the family doesn't doesn't survive and uh, and uh, they wind up um, you know remaining in the diaspora and uh, these are the only sort of reminders of what has been lost for the for the family uh, and we know. Um, I had I had spoken in the, the talk I gave at Anamed about Arshil Gorky and the the photograph that was taken of him as a, as a young child with his mother that was sent to his father who was an economic migrant in the United States and how that 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 photograph then gets discovered by Arshil Gorky uh, when he he migrates after the loss of his family. And then plays a significant role in his his artistic imagination mm-hmm. and and his painting uh, the artist and his mother, but this is this it it's in a way becomes a, a memorial to the the loss and uh, they're not intended initially as these kinds of photographs, right. but given what transpires in those decades, they they take on this this added this added uh, meaning, and then. The other thing that uh, is important in this period is also the the rise of, of postcards yes. and the importance yes. of postcards. And uh, they now take on um, importance today because they become, they're being used by Armenians to sort of reimagine what, what life was like in these provinces where their ancestors came from. Um, and important books have come out of these photographs, and then that's that's actually it. It sort of uh, gives the photograph a certain immortality because a, a photograph you take a photograph, you made a couple of copies, they get destroyed or lost. You make it into a postcard. You make hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm, of copies, mm-hmm. and many of these were published through European publishers. They get mailed all over the world, and then they get collected. And we know what uh, uh, you know Erzurum looked like at this particular time, even though you might not have photographs that survived. So they're being now used to re reimagine uh, what life was like in the late Ottoman period in 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 Anatolia. There's a Husamadian, uh, this website that is doing incredible work on on uh, using images and also texts and stories to, um, in a sense, repopulate and re reimagine the uh, Armenian uh, presence in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, they're they're doing great work, mm. and ultimately, some of the Dildilian photographs will. There are many Dildilian photographs already on that site. Many more will appear once my 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 books are out. Yes, yeah. Um, but uh, the, in a way, the the postcard, uh, you, this sort of very mundane sort of thing that you wouldn't think it it, it of, of great importance, becomes an important way of of remembering the remembering the past. Uh, 
I didn't mention also that there are a, a significant number of these photographs with members of the family who had passed away. Okay. Uh, and uh, these are also ways of, of uh, providing a kind of closure to uh, that moment in the family's story. Um, and it, you know, the, the, these sort of uh, photographs were, were fairly common in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century in the West, and in the Ottoman Empire, you don't find them except in, in primarily the Armenian community. I haven't explored the Greek community as, as much in terms of those kinds of images, but uh, I was sort of surprised to see how many of these group family photographs that wind up being sent in the, to the diaspora of some member of the family, and it's 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 often they they sometimes have propped up the individual, and and so made him almost like he's, he or she is not uh, not dead in a in a way. Um, it's a, you know we find it a little a little morbid, uh, but it's so this is at the moment or around the moment of death. They yes, hire, they bring in a photographer and yes, and pose the family. Yeah, yeah and it, it's a. I subsequently learned that this is this is uh, not it's 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 somewhat of a tradition in in Armenian families uh, these these uh, death photographs and and we have them you know we have them in our family where Aram when his younger daughter suddenly dies but this is already the during the first few months in Greece you know he takes a whole series of photographs of his daughter in bed with various flowers and items and his wife holding her daughter's hand. And, uh, uh, but the other, other ones are, are, you know, that I see in, in the ar- in archives are some, Im- some important member of the, of yeah. the community, um, you know, some important patriarch in the family. Uh, but otherwise sometimes it's just, uh, in the case of the Ankabobians, which is another major photography family in in Sivas, they they have this beautiful image of their sister who died, and uh, they have her in a beautiful chair. You know, uh, so there are aesthetic elements to this uh, this this photography of of the dead that sometimes is 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 used as another way of 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 immortality for the person who's you know, left, left the family. And is that, would you say an example of a completely new practice that takes advantage of a new technology or was it somehow kind of responding to either new conditions of travel or, or something that had been there before? Well, uh, I, I think it, 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 it opened the photography opened this up for greater numbers of people because up until that point, um, the way people uh, had a memento of their departed was some item of clothing or some object of the individual. Uh, if you were famous and important, uh, a death mask would okay. be one way of uh, capturing the the recently departed. Um, you know, the opportunity to do a painting wouldn't necessarily be there. Right. So uh, there was... There are these limited ways, but with, you know, with photography, um, the, it creates a possibility of that that person being present. Uh, um, 
now why at the mo- why after death um well i don't know you know you you certainly could have photographs of the person before they before they died but uh you know it's it's and they and they're, they they bring the whole family together um around the corpse so there is something symbolic there too it's not you know you could have the person uh, a photograph of your grandfather who's ailing um but it 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 sort of might remind you of what was bad about the mm-hmm. the departure but uh you know once the person is 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 dead and the family's gathered it marks this transition and uh, the photos are quite peaceful and yeah they're very yeah they're very they're very peaceful mm-hmm. and uh of course the one you hear the joke about you don't have to worry about holding still for the for the person who's passed away but uh uh, you always have problems with the children in these photographs because they a little blurry they're they're the ones that tend to be blurry and uh, but uh so um yeah that i mean there's a and there's a there's somewhat of a connection between you know uh the person who's missing, uh, who, who, who leaves because of, of migration and mm-hmm. economic, uh, issues or the, uh, you know, the, the, the family, uh, who's members of the family, members of the family, uh, are no longer present. Uh, and this idea of, of the, the photograph of the departed member right. of the family when they, when they pass away. Right. Well, and it's really, it's, just sort of incredible to think about the the way that the introduction of, of photography on the scale that it could be used in provincial Anatolia kind of arrived at this moment when there's so much at stake and so much coming up that's going to co- create the need for memorialization. And it's incredible that you have this. Yes, it's it, it, it's uh, it's the the circumstances are such that. Uh, you know, if 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 these events had happened in even in the mid nineteenth right. century, uh, it would you know the 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 archive would be quite different. Mm-hmm. It would it would be it just wouldn't be the same, and it wouldn't be at the sort of micro level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you know you'd have the the artist with sketches of things going on and and such, but you you wouldn't have what. Uh, what you have here, uh, which turns out in many ways to be documentary, but only in, in, in retrospect, knowing the, the circumstances of what, what, what takes place. Well, as I said, this is, it's a really beautifully written book and the photos are, um, they're so unique. There's this perspective that we really don't have from anywhere else. So thank you so much for coming and talking and, and providing us with a couple of those images that we can show to the listeners. Well, thank you for inviting me, and uh, and I much enjoyed our our conversation and your interest in in my work and the work of my family, which is it's it's their work as much as it's my work, and it's an amazing. But the way work. you've woven it together will make it accessible to people who never 
ever would have had the opportunity to see it. Um, and on that note, the exhibition of the Dillian photography, which has been moving around, it's been touring around for the last couple of years, but it will be coming to Watertown, Massachusetts in December 2016? Yes, in, in December 2016 at the Armenian Museum of America in, in Watertown, um, early December, that date is set. And uh, we, we will have most likely a form of the exhibition here in uh, Istanbul sometime in, in late this year or maybe early next year when the Turkish version of the memoir book comes out. Um, and there are also in the works exhibitions in, in California, possibly in New York, and certainly one in, or another one in Armenia. And these these exhibitions, it's it's not the the exhibitions we've had in in Turkey. We've had in Istanbul, in Merzifon, in Ankara, and Diyarbakir. Uh, each one has been in a different venue, so there's there's been a lot of work in in recreating parts of mm. it. Some of it we had to completely recreate because mm. the Istanbul exhibition wasn't a traveling one. Right. Um, and in these other countries. You know, it it begins again. Uh, so it's. I wish it was something I could pack in my bag, uh, and and because we're not in some cases, most of the cases we're doing enlargements of these photographs. Uh-huh. Uh, in in the exhibition we had in London and in Yerevan, we used some of the originals, but we haven't okay. used the originals in a lot of the uh, the exhibitions here in Turkey because okay. the venues weren't such. But. Mm. Well, if you have the opportunity, if any of our listeners have the opportunity to catch the exhibition, I highly uh, encourage you to do so. It's it's a really valuable resource for, for all of us, um, visually and historically. Uh, in the meantime, you can find the book, um, which explicates a lot of the historical context, the, the family's memoirs, and, the, and a lot of the photographs are included as well. The book, again, is called Fragments of a Lost Homeland, Remembering Armenia. Uh, we'll put a link to that on our website. Um, and if you'd like to find out more, there will also be a short bibliography alongside. So uh, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Thank you.